So we do look to the ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit works by the Word. That's the tagline there on the front of your bullet this morning. The tagline for our congregation. Word and Spirit. Mind and heart. God reaches us. Mind and heart, body and soul, by word and spirit. And so we turn now to the word of God. And you can see in your bulletin this morning that we turn to 2 Samuel 24. Believe it or not, this Sunday, we reach the end of 1 and 2 Samuel. This Sunday, we break the tape and we cross the finish line. In case... You've forgotten, and I'll admit, I'd forgotten too. I had to look it up. It was October the 11th, 2020, when we began 1 Samuel, October the 11th, 2020. We've we've had a few guest speakers along the way. We've taken a few detours. We pressed pause on 1 and 2 Samuel a few times along the way. But still, it's been over 21 months since we got started on this. I did contemplate the possibility of doing a three-month series just on chapter 24, and then we could make it an even two years. But then I thought, no. Let's just do, um, do it in one Sunday and wrap up First and Second Samuel this Sunday. Let's get our bearings here before I read. As I've mentioned before, these last four chapters of Second Samuel are sometimes labeled an appendix or an epilogue, and you have these recurring themes throughout these final four chapters. We get to know David better in these three ways. As a king who faced difficulties of various sorts, as a leader who was served by valiant men, and as a poet who gave expression to his faith. So we get to know David better in those three ways here, at the end of 2 Samuel. And as I've mentioned before, there does seem to be a structure in the way the whole thing's set up, a kind of A, B, C, C, B, A pattern. David facing difficulty, David served by valiant men, David is a poet, and then you have the pattern reversed. David is a poet, served by valiant men, and facing some kind of difficulty, some kind of Calamity. So it looks like there's some kind of structure to the way these last few chapters have, are set up. That's one reason why folks have thought that it is a separate section of its own. And though we can't be sure, that could explain why the passage we looked at a few weeks ago, that poem entitled The Last Words of David, a poem that we might have expected to be at the very end of the book, is not. That's a question that came up in the sermon discussion that Sunday morning, and it's a perfectly reasonable question. Maybe you've asked it too. Maybe you've wondered too. Why doesn't that poem, The Last Words of David, come last? Well, we can't be sure, but maybe, just maybe, it has something to do with the way this whole epilogue is set up in a mirror pattern. In any case, what that means is that this morning we reached the second of the two Bookends. We reach the end. Once again, we've got David with a problem on his hands, although this time the difference is that the problem, at least in part, is one of his own making. So let's see what happens. 
2 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that, it, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I will re- shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. From the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. And I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Araunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Araunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Araunah said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Araunah said to David, 
Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Araunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So this is the word of our God. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. This morning as we reach the end of this series that we embarked on so long ago. And you have been our guide, and you have taught us early on. We heard the boy Samuel say, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And so have we turned to these books all these months, and we do so one more time today. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We would hear your voice And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time I ever ran a half marathon, I did come away from the experience thinking, well, there was nothing half about that. That was fully exhausting. That was 100%. Exhausting. That wasn't half of anything. But the other thing I remember about that day is, of all the things that they had waiting for us beyond the finish line, after 13 plus miles, was a beer garden. They actually had set up a tent where they were serving beer. And I remember thinking, I I appreciate the effort to create a kind of festive atmosphere beyond the finish line, but a beer garden? Have you ever run a half marathon? Do you really think that's what people are going to be interested in after 13 grueling miles? It struck me as a strange thing to find at the finish line, even if you say, well, it was for family and friends. No, the race started at 8 a.m., especially because you just spent the last two hours give or take, wondering what it's going to be like at the finish line. What's it going to feel like? What's going to be waiting for me there? And it was my first. And I can assure you, a beer garden is not what I had been picturing. It struck me as a strange thing to find at the finish line. Well, I think we can admit today it's okay if we feel that way here this morning. This Sunday, we break the tape and we cross the finish line of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And I was thinking, somebody who's never read these Bible books before, you can imagine that person reading 1st and 2nd Samuel for the very first time. 
So they've read all of 1 Samuel, all 31 chapters of it. And now they've read the first 23 chapters of 2 Samuel, just one chapter to go. And maybe they've been taking their time. Maybe they've even taken 21 months, give or take. And so it's felt a little bit like a half marathon, except it hasn't felt like half of anything. And it's been gripping. And it's been dramatic. And it's been a, a, a biblical roller coaster of highs and lows. And it's been the glorious purposes of God coming to their glorious realization. And the whole time that new reader has been wondering, how's this going to end? What's it going to be like at the finish line? What's going to be waiting for me there? This story that we've got here in 2 Samuel 24 is probably not it. Probably not the kind of thing that that new reader was expecting to find at the end. I know I've told this story before, but I do remember feeling that way the very first time I ever read the book of Acts in the New Testament as a new believer in college. The book of Acts. The ministry of the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus. And it was gripping. And it was dramatic. And it was a roller coaster of highs and lows. And it was the glorious purposes of God coming to their glorious realization. And that whole time I was wondering, how is this going to end? What's it going to be like at the finish line? Well, the way Acts ends is not what I was expecting. The Apostle Paul in Roman captivity in Rome proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. I remember thinking, wait, what? I remember thinking, no, there's supposed to be a brass band waiting here at the finish line. And instead I get a sentence that feels like an ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. I, I turned the page thinking there was a chapter 29. I thought maybe I'd purchased a defective Bible, a publisher's cast-off because they didn't print it right. But no, they printed it right. That's how the book of Acts ends. And in God's word, it's perfect. And brothers and sisters, we can say the very same thing here this morning. This is how First and Second Samuel ends. In God's word, and it's perfect. This story that we've got before us today, this might not be what we'd have placed at the end, but God did. It was by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit that the writer-slash-compiler of this epic put this bow on it, and it's perfect. So let's not be disappointed today. Let's glory in this today, and let's learn from it, for there are Sweet lessons here for us to learn. Here's how we'll proceed today. I do want to touch on some things that need some explanation here in this passage, because there are a few of them. And then second, after we've done that work, we'll think about what we can take from it. So that's the plan. Some explanations for the mind and then some application for the heart. So first of all, we can admit there are several things in here that we need to stop and think about and explain. So we've got some of that work to do, and it'll be good for us to do it. It'll help, I hope, clear some things up. The first thing that we need to address here is the way this same story is told over in 1 Chronicles. This is something that we've, we've noticed before as we've been making our way. A lot of what you read about David in First and Second Samuel is also covered over in the book of 
First Chronicles. And this story is no exception. You can read it over in First Chronicles chapter 21. And you don't need to turn there, but just listen. This is how the story begins over in Chronicles. Chapter 21, verse 1. It says this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. First Chronicles 21. So right out, right out of the gate... There is a remarkable difference, a glaring difference between the way the story is told in our chapter in 2 Samuel and the way it's told in 1 Chronicles. In our passage in 2 Samuel 24, it says, the Lord incited David. And then you turn those pages over to 1 Chronicles 21 and the story begins, Satan incited David. So those are two different ways of telling the story, two different ways of accounting for David's action, but there's nothing contradictory about them. In 2 Samuel, we're told, the Lord incited David, and that's a way of telling the story that highlights God's sovereignty over this whole affair. In Chronicles, we're told, Satan incited David. Well, that's a different way of telling the story. That's a way of telling the story that sheds some light on exactly how God exercised his sovereignty. And the answer is he did so by allowing Satan to do what Satan does. As Martin Luther memorably put it, the devil is God's devil. He does God's bidding. The devil is a creature, and God reigns over all creatures. The purposes of God incorporate all creatures, great and small, and all their actions, right and wrong. God allowed Satan to do what Satan does. Thus, the two different ways of putting it in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. So we can start there. And that brings us to a second thing that we might want to explain here, which is what Satan does. And I suppose here, it's a bit of a detour. It's a word of explanation about Chronicles. But since it's put that way there, and we've noticed it, let's stop and think about that as well. To say that Satan incited David to sin in this way, the way it's put over in Chronicles, that does not mean that the devil made him do it and that David was not responsible. By all means, David was responsible for what he did. The action that David took was an action that David took, and he took it willingly. And it's perfectly compatible with that to affirm something that we've affirmed before, which is that Satan is ever at work in unseen ways, in mysterious ways, He's at work to promote sin, to tempt and entice and suggest and seduce within the parameters of the reality of human responsibility. Strictly speaking, Satan doesn't make anybody sin, but he's at work doing whatever he can to promote the cause of sin. And that includes doing what he can to influence responsible, willing human beings. And apparently, in this particular episode, God allowed Satan to have some unseen influence on David's mind and heart. That's the implication of the way it's put over in 1 Chronicles. 
So there's that. But then that still leaves us with the third thing that we might want to explain here, which is back now to our chapter, 2 Samuel 24. What exactly are we supposed to make of God's sovereignty over this whole affair? Back now to 2 Samuel 24, we're told in no uncertain terms, the Lord incited David. What do we make of that? Well, our Westminster Confession of Faith helps us here. And I I want you to listen to some of the things that our Confession of Faith confesses in the chapter on God's providence. And and God's providence is his um, governing and directing all things for his own glory. Listen to what our Confession of Faith says about God's providence when it comes to human sin. It says this, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet... So as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who, God being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. I realize that's a lot. What's being said there is that even the reality of human sin in human history is not beyond the scope of God's sovereignty. Even that can be attributed ultimately to what God planned and God bringing to pass what he planned. And yet, sin itself never proceeds from God as something that he positively creates in the soul. As mysterious as all of this is, and we can acknowledge that, those are parameters, those are guardrails that we need to put in place because the Bible does, and we're simply acknowledging the limits the parameters that the Bible sets down. So there's that affirmation of, of divine sovereignty and yet that clarification when it comes to God not being the author or approver of sin. And then our confession of faith says this. Very next paragraph. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. I know that's a lot too, but we can boil that one down too. What's being said there is that sometimes, oftentimes, God leaves us, leaves his own children like David to the power of sin that already resides in their own hearts. And whenever God does that, because he's God, because he's holy and wise, whenever he does that, it's for good purposes. So if you put all of that together, right, we're just trying to be clear here about 
what it means that the Lord incited David in this instance. If you put all of that together, we have to say, God does not positively act so as to create sin in the soul, but God is perfectly free, and it's perfectly compatible with his own holiness for him to withdraw his own holy restraining power including letting Satan do what Satan does in such a way as to give a sinner over to his sin so that that sinner is unloosed to act it out in some way. It can be jarring for us to read here, the Lord incited David. So we just need to be clear about what is and is not being affirmed. God's not positively creating sin in David's soul. But he's free in a moment like this and in our own lives, if he pleases, to withdraw the restraining influence of his Holy Spirit in such a way that we're given over to the sin that's already there. And whenever he does that, whenever he does that in the lives of one of his own, believe it or not, he does it out of love, that we might be humbled and learn and grow. So there's that. That brings us to the next thing that we should explain here, which is, you know, going back to the very beginning of the story, what exactly was God angry about? Because this whole remarkable episode that unfolds is traceable back to God being angry with the people of Israel. And that's why he gave David over to sin in this way, God knowing full well that it would lead to a chastisement of the people as a whole. So that's the question. What exactly was God angry about? Why was he angry with Israel? What had they done or failed to do? And the answer to that question is we don't know, and that's okay. We're not told here about that bit of background. And that's okay. What that tells us, that tells us something about this very chapter in the Bible and why it's here. The focus of this passage is not on what Israel had done before that was wrong. Instead, the focus of this passage is on what God does now that's holy and merciful. It's where this episode ends that's the main thing. It ends in God's faithfulness. The main thing is not where it began in Israel's faithlessness, which is left to the mists of history. So there's that. And then that brings us to the last thing, I promise, that we might want to explain here, the the fifth of these five points of explanation, which is, what exactly was wrong with what David did? Even if we say, well, we don't know what Israel did before to set this whole thing in motion... We do know the action that David took here that angered the Lord. What was wrong about what David did? He ordered that there be a census of the people. Apparently, he wanted to know what size army he had to work with. What's wrong with that? Might make you think twice before you volunteer to work as a U.S. census worker. You think that you're calling down the wrath of God upon yourself for being involved in such a project. What's wrong with wanting to take a census? Well, the answer to that one, one more time, is that we're just not told here, not explicitly, why this was wrong. We can only guess. 
The ESV Study Bible has a nice little way of putting it. It says this, quote, By numbering the people for military purposes, David apparently showed lack of trust in the Lord to supply the necessary men when needed and wrongful pride in the hundreds of thousands of forces at his command. The text does not specify why it was sin, but such an action could have been motivated by pride, trust in self, and lack of trust in the Lord, end quote. To which I would add my hearty amen, including the words in there, the words apparently and could have been. We can only guess as to why exactly this was wrong, the action that David took. But those are good, reasonable, plausible guesses. It's probably the case that this reflected some lack of faith on David's part, pride in David's heart. And not only that, but there must have been something about this circumstance that that was known at the time, perhaps even known by those for whom this account would have been first written. There must have been something about the circumstance that made it clear that this was wrong. And I say that because even Joab knew that David shouldn't do this. And that this was risking the wrath of God so that he tried to persuade David not to do it. So again, it's okay that we're not told that it's not spelled out here. It's good for us to be curious. There's nothing wrong with us wondering. And there may be even a part of us that wishes that we knew more about this episode. But we've got to rest content in this. It's enough to know that it was wrong and that it still led to God's mercy anyway, chastisement, and then relenting from it. It's enough to know what we're told here so that we can know it. So those five points of explanation here, there's a lot in this story that calls for some explaining, especially when we cast a glance over at First Chronicles. So hopefully that's that's helped, but we don't just want to be about the work of explanation this morning. That wouldn't really qualify as a sermon. We also want to stop and think about what this means, what this ought to mean for us in our own hearts and lives. And, And this is what I want to drive home here, especially because this is the end. This is the final word in First and Second Samuel after 21 months. This book does not end with the last words of David. It ends with this. We may not have expected this story at the finish line, but it's perfect. What I love about this passage and the fact that it's the last thing in the whole book is that it means that the last word in First and Second Samuel is God's mercy. Divine mercy. After everything we've seen over 35 or 55 chapters in the Bible, after everything that we've seen, including what we see here in this chapter, divine mercy is the last note that rings out. And that's beautiful. And I say that I highlight God's mercy here, not only because 
God gives David some say in this matter, in the matter of his own chastisement, which God did not have to do. And also because at the end of this story, God relents from this plague, which it must have been just for him to impose. So you you get glimpses of mercy there and there, but also because the outcome of this story is that David has acquired the piece of property where his son Solomon is going to build God's temple. And that's perfect. And, and that, too, is something we pick up when we turn a few pages over to First Chronicles 21 into 22, where this same story is told. Because First Chronicles 22 says this, the very first verse, after David has acquired this piece of property. Then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. That's 1 Chronicles 22. And right after that, you have David making all kinds of preparations for the temple that his son Solomon is going to have built after he's gone, after David is gone. So yes, on the one hand, it can feel a little deflating to see David fail here at the end of the book. We might have thought we'd turned a corner when it comes to David and his sin. But no, we didn't, and that can bring us down. But on the other hand, it ought to be comforting to think that even in the wake of that last failure on David's part that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel, even in the wake of that, the foundation has been laid for the future. The building of the temple. A future in which... God will ever remain the faithful God that his people need him to be. A future in which God will be present among them, present among us. How perfect is that as a final note? In this very last chapter, yes, David sins. And it must be that the people had sinned as well, but that is not the last word. The last word is divine mercy. Divine mercy leading to divine presence with his people. And, and that's not just how this Bible book ends. That's how the whole book that is the Bible ends. That's how human history is going to end. The last word is not and shall not be our sin. It's God's mercy leading to God's presence with us. That's why I wanted to read for us earlier in our service from the end of the Bible. The book of Revelation and the visions that John is given there and the words that he hears there that he shares with us by the Holy Spirit. That's how the whole book ends that is the Bible. That points us forward to how the whole book of human history is going to end. By his mercy, God will have brought us there to that world to come. And thanks to his mercy, it is his presence that we will know there in that world. The only difference is 
And what a comforting difference this is, is that we won't need any altar there. The way David did on the property of Arauna, the Jebusite. We won't need any altar there. The way David did, the way Israel did, we won't need any sacrifices there. That's been done. Jesus made it. It is finished. Nothing but divine presence in that world. That'll be the last word. And this last word at the very end of First and Second Samuel has a way of pointing us there. So Christian, I know you can be so weighed down by the reality of your own sin that it can start to feel like Your own sin and misery is the last word. It is not. It will not be. So that's why I say, let us rest and rejoice today in how this book ends. Because it points us to the end of our lives, to the end of time, and to the most glorious new beginning that will dawn then. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have been our guide over these 21 months through these remarkable books, through these historical counts, and a few poems too the glorious realization of your own glorious purposes. And we thank you for the way this book ends, for it points us forward to an ending that will be a new beginning that will never end. We rejoice today in the revelation of your mercy. We rejoice today in the thought that you are with us, we have your presence with us, and in the world to come we shall have it like never before. No need for an altar there, no need for a temple, and temple sacrifices are there, for there shall be the Lamb, and there we shall be with him. So strengthen our hope today, we pray, in his name. Amen.